Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We start with another battle in the city, and that's the fight over the Vancouver Police Department budget. Now, remember, Vancouver City Council put a freeze on the police budget, rejecting a request by the VPD to increase their budget by about nearly $6 million. Now, this one's really heating up now. The Vancouver Police Board is now appealing that decision by the city council to freeze the police budget, and this one could kick, uh, get kicked upstairs for the provincial government to sort out. Now, on yesterday's show, I spoke to Doug Spencer. He's a former cop. He was with the VPD for 30 years. He now works uh, trying to keep kids out of gangs. We talked to him on the show today or yesterday, and he was very critical of the move by the city to freeze the police budget. He thinks the, the city, the police department should get their budget increase. Let's get the other side of it now. My guest is Garth Mullins. He's the host of the Crackdown podcast about drugs and drug policy in the city. He supports defunding the police. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Garth, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. Okay, let's start with your position on this budget fight here. Do you think the uh, the, the city should should stick with freezing the police budget? I imagine you think they should they should reduce the budget, never mind freezing it. Oh yeah, a coalition in this uh, in this city called for a fifty percent rollback, and of course that wouldn't wow. take the police back to the nineteenth century or something. It would take them back about twelve or thirteen years. Uh, the budgets have really gone up, but the city council said, "Let's freeze the budget." I mean, they were freezing and cutting all of their departments because of the extra expenses and the less revenue due to the pandemic. Okay, how does it make sense to inflict such a dramatic cut on the police department like the one you described when you take a look at how much police calls for service have, have gone up in the city? I mean, the calls for service are up dramatically. The number of police interactions with the public is way up. So how would that work if you cut their budget in half? Well, let's think about what's going on. Um, over the last decades, crime and violent crime has been on a downward trend, like quite dramatically across North America. At the same time, police budgets have started to go up in more recent years. So over the last decade, decade and a half in Vancouver, quite dramatically. Uh, so we gotta, we got to wonder, what are the police doing? Well, yesterday, Doug Spence said they're doing a lot of mental health calls and dealing with the opioid crisis. And um, that's probably because of uh, budget cuts for other, you know, federal or provincial services that have been, you know, taking place dramatically over the past bunch of governments. So what we need to do is give that money, take it away from the cops and give it to people who actually know how to deal with someone who's having a bad day mental health wise or who's having an overdose crisis. The police are not the right people to deal with those things. Okay, I think it'd be really tough to do that at a time when the police are getting 270,000 calls a year for service and 
and over a million public con- contacts with the public here a year. But let me play this here for you, Garth. Let's play a couple of the things that Doug Spencer said said yesterday on this show, retired VPD officer. Now, here he is talking about the impacts of this budget freeze. The police department uh, arguing that this would prevent them from hiring new officers and replacing officers who retire each year. So he says, look, this is going to hit hit us on our staffing levels. And here's what he said would be the impact. Doug Spencer yesterday. If you cut 60 recruits for a year or two, there'll be a big gap. And, you know, there's so much going on. You got all the, it's like a war out there in the streets with all these gang members. You lessen the amount of police that can respond to that and deal with the smuggled weapons and all the things that are causing turmoil and death in our society, not to mention overdose deaths, right? Who's going to respond? There's policemen uh, on the street that are saving people every day with naloxone. There'll be no policeman standing on that corner with naloxone to go and help that addict who's overdosing to death. Okay, Garth, what do you say to that? I mean, you advocate for drug users in the in the city. He's saying that police officers are saving people who are overdosing. What do you say? I'm not familiar with police officers saving people. Uh, you know, we've definitely seen police officers interfering while other people are saving people, people from the community. Well, they've got, they carry naloxone, though, right? Sure. I mean, we that was a demand that came from drug users, and they fought us on that. Right, they they fought us on all drug reform in this city wow. for generations. So sure, here we are. Where where does the overdose crisis come from? It comes from enforcement against drugs. The harder you enforce drugs, uh, the more stronger they get. It's just like alcohol prohibition, right? They made alcohol illegal. Everyone was drinking beer before prohibition, and they were having to drink moonshine because moonshiners got to smuggle it around, right? So. Okay, Getting but the police away the, from the drug war is yeah. a big part of this, and that means money, money okay. from the cops. Okay, the police though would argue that they have effectively backed off on criminalization of drug offenses in the city. Like they don't arrest or charge people for for drug possession. Now I know you're going to say that sometimes the cops will take away people's drugs if they stop them on the street, but I mean they do carry naloxone. They they do intervene. Uh, when they see someone overdosing on the street? Like, how many times have the police administered naloxone in the city of Vancouver? Do you know? I would like to FOI that, really. I mean, but think about it. Every time the cops seize drugs or weapons around here, we see it on Twitter advertised a lot. They're pretty good at PR in Vancouver. So if they were saving a lot of people with Narcan, I feel like we'd hear about it a lot more. Okay, so when you say you want to dramatically cut spending on police... What happens to all those calls that the police are doing now, the mental health calls, the drug overdoses, uh, the ho- homeless camp calls? You're saying, like, okay, what, send, yeah, send let's social? Let's talk about that. Let's yeah. talk about what sure. they do. What do those calls turn into? Well, these wellness checks and mental health calls often turn into someone getting hurt or dying. I have seen how police roll up on someone having a bad day mental health-wise, and they escalate that situation. So you need people who understand mental health crises, who can de-escalate it, you don't need well, police rolling up with guns and sirens. Okay, well, the police would argue that a lot of these calls that are mental health checks or wellness checks involve elements of danger, threats to the public, threats of violence. Like 84, according to the VPD, of all the mental health calls they deal with, 84% of all those calls are not just like a, a simple wellness check that a social worker could do. It involves threats of violence or danger to the public or weapons or what, or what have you. So let me play this here for you again. So this is Doug Spencer, again, the retired cop on the show yesterday, uh, speaking about this matter and interactions with people. Here's what he said. 
nobody wants to go out there and harm a kid or beat up somebody. I don't even know where this comes from. It's just the most ridiculous thing, right? So, you know, and the problem is when you're using physical force, it is not an exact science. You, you get, we get lots of training and, you know, try and stay in shape and be able to take control of people without hurting them. Nobody wants to hurt anybody. We just want to have, sometimes you have to use force to arrest people. Yeah. Okay. Do you, would you acknowledge that sometimes police do have to have use of force, right? I mean, that's kind of obvious. When, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So these guys are the only people in our society who are legally entitled to use force. And, I, and that, you know, that shouldn't be an extended thing. But when, when you have that power, that's your answer for a lot of things. So you roll up with lights flashing and your hand on your hip, ready to jump out. And, and yesterday, Doug Spence did say, it's a war out there. These people are, are always ready to spark off one wrong word. They'll jump to it. This is not, if you talk to people who work in the mental health space in Vancouver, yeah. we, we've all figured out how to de-escalate people. And we don't have guns. Right, like I have done this before. But I guess what I guess what I'm escalated cops, Mike. I guess what I'm I guess what I'm saying. I guess what I'm saying to you is, would would you at least acknowledge or admit that there are times when the use of force by a police officer is necessary? Right. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean probably. Yeah. It's, probably. My my experience um, with police does not reflect that. Uh, wow. So, okay. Well, I what think we're talking I, about here is is the budget, right? So the police are going to continue to exist. We were calling for a 50% um, rollback, so we'd be back to the 2000s era. don't think that's unreasonable, but of course the city council isn't going to do that. The city council said right. freeze, and the police said no. And the police board said, we're going to overrule the democratic decision of the city council and go to an unelected, undemocratic uh, senior bureaucrat in the provincial government. Well, the police board, former cop. the police board is in place to advocate on behalf of the public and to make sure that the city is safe and that the police services are adequate. So they're taking the steps that they feel is necessary in order to fulfill their mandate. But let me let me play this well, here. Are they so? They're not elected. Well, right? the public doesn't choose those people. Okay, let me play this here for you. This is Doug Spencer once again on yesterday, retired VPD. Now, here he is talking specifically about this issue on mental health checks. And he says why you need the police to respond to some of these calls. Here's, here he is. You're there as a policeman because these people are extremely volatile. They have severe mental health issues. And they can go off like a rocket, that poor nurse or a social worker. They could get killed quite easily. There was a, a guy stabbed down at Skid Row to death a couple of months ago. So the police are only there to protect them and allow them to do their work. Okay, isn't it a simple fact that you know, sometimes someone's who in, in the throes of a psychotic episode or a, a really bad drug overdose that they could act out. They can get violent. Mike, we got, um, you know, I got uh, people who live in my building. You know, one person who has mental health issues. Someone in my family does. Yeah. And if they're having a hard day, I don't want to call a guy who's talking like that, who's going to roll up thinking these guys will jump off. These guys are dangerous, blah, 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 blah. That is the wrong approach. That is someone who is not in the mental health space. You need to roll up thinking, I can de-escalate this. We can bring the temperature down. That's, that's what people like me know how to do. Uh, the, the difficulty is well, police aren't trained for that. Police are thinking we, we may have to use violence. We may have to get serious. You know, it's always the escalation. It's always the rev up. Okay, Garth, thank you for coming on today. I think you've given us a lot to think about and talk about. I appreciate your time today.
Sure. Thanks, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. And here we go now with the transition to electric vehicles. Now, do you drive an EV right now? Most British Columbians do not. But could your next vehicle be an electric car or truck? I think lots of people are thinking about that. Certainly the world's major automakers are on track to transition to electric vehicles. Check this out. General Motors, according to their plan, uh, planning to go completely electric by the year 2035. That's incredible. Completely electric. They would eliminate their gas-powered cars. That's according to General Motors. Now, how about Ford? Have a listen to this now. Ford bringing out an electric Mustang. Oh, I've always wanted an old classic Mustang. But what about an electric Mustang? Now, have a listen to this ad. This is for the Mustang Mach-E. Just when you think you know where they're going, they do something unexpected. Something that moves us all forward and holds nothing back. The all-electric Mustang Mark E. The newest member of the family. Oh, man, the Mustang Mach-E. This thing looks like a powerhouse. Got a lot of horsepower. It goes really fast. All electric. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Dan Alika. He's a car reviewer, a car reviewer and auto writer for Auto Trader. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hiya, Dan. Hey, Mike. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Like I said, I've always thought about, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a classic Mustang? I always thought like a, maybe a 66 or a 67 you know, classic Mustang would be a pretty cool thing to have, you know. But, man, an electric Mustang, that's a totally different idea. What do you think about this idea with Ford bringing out an electric Mustang? Is that a game changer in your mind? Uh, yeah, you know, I think so. I think it was a, a bold strategy uh, to use the Mustang name. I know, you know, a lot of purists aren't so thrilled about it, but yeah. I think it's bold because it makes that statement that, hey, we're here, we're serious about this, and... You know, all, by all accounts, this thing is the game changer that, you know, it, it needs to be. Uh, it's, it's well-priced, it's got good range, it's got good power, and it's, and it's got good space. And I think that's kind of the recipe that's been missing for a little while now uh, in the EV market as it kind of ramps up is something that's, you know, cool, that's fun, that's affordable. And I think that, that Mach-E is really, you know, it, it meets a lot of those criteria. Yeah, what's, what's the price on that, you know? Uh, so it starts right around, I think, right around fifty thousand dollars before any incentive. So you know, obviously in BC, there's a a three thousand uh, dollar up to a three thousand dollar incentive, uh, and that works on the cheapest one. I think it caps at about fifty five grand. Uh, there's also a federal EV rebate that's about twenty five hundred bucks on top of that. So you know, you can get that price down a little bit. I know that's a little much to stomach for what's you know essentially a base vehicle. But then again, when you think about it, you're looking at you know a good 400 kilometers or so of range and like you said that style i just think it looks so cool oh yeah i mean i've taken a look at this thing and it's, it's a pretty awesome looking vehicle and when you take a look at the specs on this i mean you can get it up to 346 horsepower zero to 60 miles an hour in just 3.5 seconds wow and an, an all-electric vehicle that's that's pretty amazing like do you think this is a ford's version of the the tesla are they are they looking at tesla's competition and figure like we've got to get like a marquee electric vehicle out there too for sure i think that's a safe yeah. you know a safe bet to to call it that i mean tesla's obviously been a game changer tesla's done 
a lot for electrification in the auto industry as a whole. Um, you know, it's been relatively speaking, it's been unchallenged for a long time. And as it gets into those more affordable vehicles, you know, the Model 3, the Model Y, yeah. Ford coming out with this, it really does hit in that, you know, in that sweet spot where it's affordable enough to, for people to really give it a serious look. And I, and I do think there, you know, there's room for both to survive, obviously, in the market, especially as electrification, you know, becomes more widespread and, and something that people are going to be more and more interested in. There's room for both. But I do yeah. think that Ford is making a power play here. Yeah, is it really a Mustang though? If it's if it's all electric, I mean, it's not exactly you know Steve McQueen style, right? No, and that's you know that's I think always going to be the hang-up. I think you know from a styling perspective, it looks like it. A performance perspective, that's going to be a different thing altogether, and and you're never going to replace that sensation of a you know a rear-wheel drive V8 powered you know coupe just flying down the road. But again, I think from a marketing perspective. I do look at it like it, using that Mustang name isn't going to turn off potential adoptees, I don't think. And right. yeah, okay, it might upset the purists, but that doesn't mean that they're going to stop buying their V8-powered Mustangs just because this Mach-E exists. So I think it was bold, but I think it does have you know some cachet that, that it needs. No, it is. It is a really interesting move. Speaking of Dan Alika from Auto Trader, what about some of the other companies, Dan? Like if some companies made commitments to go all electric what companies have done that yeah i mean you're starting to see it now you know this year in particular uh over the last couple of weeks especially we've seen a lot of announcements about electrification you know ford is is shifting all of its european uh you know platforms to electrification in the wow. next i think about the next you know 15 years gm has committed to going you know virtually all electric by 2035 uh, Jaguar has announced like a, a pretty aggressive plan to have its lineup all electric by I think it's 2025, which is you know that's a very aggressive plan. Uh, and then its sister company Land Rover is going to have electric versions of all of its vehicles in that same in that same time frame. So the push is on. I think this is this is the real deal. It's it's go time. The rubber's meeting the road, and and companies are are kind of going all in, or at least laying out their plans to go all in. Okay, Dan, what do you think as, as a car guy, as an, a, an expert and enthusiast, a guy who drives different cars all the time when, you, when you're driving, you're, you're writing your reviews for Auto Trader? I mean, what are, what are your views overall on an electric vehicle? I mean, are they good? Do you enjoy driving them? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, I can understand the, the kind of apprehension, especially with range anxiety, right? That's always yeah. the, the hot topic is, hey, what if I want to, you know, take that drive, you know, from, from Vancouver to Kelowna, um, am I going to make it? And yes, that is a big, you know, a stumbling point, I would say. But as time has gone on, you look at, you know, vehicles now that they're, they're able to exceed that four to 500 kilometer range on a single charge, you're going to make it. And it's also, there's something very unique and enjoyable about the serenity. And I love, you know, the, I mean, when you drive a muscle car and you've got that roaring engine under the hood and the exhaust, it sounds great, but there's something kind of equally enjoyable about the quietness, the serenity of cruising around in, in, you know, near silence, you can hear the gravel under the tires because the, you know, there's no, there's no engine sound. Yeah. Right. No, that's interesting. Interesting thought. What about, um, like, are they improving in quality? The batteries are getting better. The, the drive, the drive distances between charges, it's, it's yeah, all improving, absolutely. right? Yeah, and the charge times are, are getting quicker and quicker. And, yeah. you know, even today, I mean, we're, again, just part of that whole thing about 
the news cycle never really seems to stop right now in terms of electrification. So a couple of weeks ago, Hyundai announced its new Ionic 5 EV, which is a which is a hatchback, and it's really cool. And then, you know, just today, Hyundai Canada announced a partnership with a Quebec-based company uh, called Lithion that recycles batteries. Um, and that, again, is one of those game changers because I know that's a... I talked to my mom about it, and she had that concern. Well, what happens with you know, these batteries, once they reach their, you know, the end of the road. I mean, we really haven't reached, sure, occasionally you're going to have it, just like an engine is going to wear out sooner than your neighbor's engine in the in his Camry. But we haven't really reached that point where electric vehicles have, have kind of seen that end of life. Um, but a lot of modeling, you know, there's there's potential to drive half a million kilometers. And that doesn't mean that the battery is done. It just means it can't serve in that capacity, just like your cell phone. You know, yeah. it, the battery might not work, but where where you can use it is they can recycle the materials, they can use it for energy storage. There's lots of, you know, kind of afterlife, let's say, use for this stuff. And yeah. so seeing this partnership that Hyundai's announced today in Canada specifically is very cool because it shows that there's a thoughtfulness, not just about the vehicles themselves, but but this holistic approach to electrification. Okay, what that's very interesting. What about the trend? Is the trend right now to all electric or what about the hybrid? Like is the hybrid still an option because that was a thought I had in my mind. Wouldn't you have the best of both worlds with a hybrid? For sure. I, I, you know, it does seem a little bit uh of a, you know, to each their own. I personally do enjoy hybrids. You know, I think you and I talked about that before that you do yeah. get that best of both worlds. Um and especially with a plug-in hybrid, if you're looking at a city where you know, you might not be able to, to drive uh, with an internal combustion engine in the future. Having a, a plug-in hybrid where you can store that battery uh, for, for use in the city and then make your commute home on a combination of gas and electricity. But I think plug-in hybrids do get a little bit of a, you know, they're, they're in a bit of a purgatory, let's say, where they're, they're, it's not a hybrid. It's more expensive than a conventional hybrid. It doesn't do what a full electric can and so you're seeing companies like Hyundai just kind of skip right over um, plug-in hybrids with, you know, its Genesis uh, luxury sub-brand. It just, it's going straight to electrification, I think, because maybe it, we don't need that stopgap anymore. All right, welcome back. We have tons of phone calls here on electric vehicles. Dan Alika is my guest from Auto Trader. Mark and Twasson. Hey, Mark. Hey, how you doing? I've been a Tesla Model 3 uh, driver for a couple of years, and to be honest with you, I'm getting bored of it. I miss my pickup truck, and I really wish the Ford F-150 was uh, more of a true hybrid uh, plug-in or something because basically it's just a gas engine with a generator on board, so I'm waiting for that. What's wrong with your Tesla? It's just it's just boring. It's just the same old, same old. I mean, I miss having the room. I miss having a truck. It's hard going from a truck to a little sports car, and as you get yeah. older, it's hard to get in and out of it. You know what I mean? Okay, Dan, what do you think of that? I mean, I, I do understand, and especially in Canada, you know, our appetite for, for pickup trucks is massive. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the it's like four of the top five best-selling vehicles in Canada year after year are full-size trucks. But the good news is, you know, we're probably a little more than a year away from an all-electric F-150. Um, that yeah. hybrid, you know, yes, I get it that it's, you know, not not as efficient, especially if you're coming out of an EV um, but it is, you know, I mean, it, it's going to get you less than 10 liters per hundred kilometers combined, which is way better right. than your average pickup truck. 
uh, with that built-in generator, which is an awesome, awesome feature. Let's go to Kimberly calling from Fort St. James. Hi, Kimberly. Hi, gentlemen. I have a question that I've kind of looked at. I'm in north-central British Columbia. My closest community would be Prince George. Um, We're pickup people, obviously. And um, my question is, I guess, I've done a bit of research and listened to many shows. If I'm going from Prince George to Vancouver in an electric vehicle, I do see now, finally, there are more charging stations along the way. Few, but there are more. How long... In my gas pickup, it would take 10, 11 hours. How long would it take me with charging in an EV vehicle? Because nobody ever talks about how long it takes to charge an EV yeah. vehicle. Right. Dan, do you, what do, you, do you know? What would you say? Again, you know, we're, we're at that point where level two and level three charging, um, you know, is, is becoming more common. And like she said, I mean, brands like Petro Canada are, are putting in electric chargers as we speak uh to to kind of alleviate some of that pressure yeah it's going to add some time but if you can kind of if you could stop every few hours let's say every 300 kilometers you've got to stop for an hour it is obviously longer than a quick top up of gas but you know the point is that it's it's doable and it's becoming more an hour as time goes on like a one hour charge would keep you going Yeah, I mean, again, you probably that drive from from I think she said Prince George to to Vancouver. That's, you know, that's a hike. Um, I feel like, yeah, you'd have to probably you'd probably look at two, you know, relatively quick stops. Okay, let's keep getting some calls in here. Les in the Noose Bay. Go ahead, Les. Hi. Um, I have a problem with manufacturers always sucking the value out of everything. you think this is going to be a good deal. You're going to save money because you don't have to buy gas and all that kind of thing. But what I found out when researching some of these uh, electric cars is replacing those batteries when they go is going to give you pause to think whether or not you want to buy another car instead of replacing the battery. How much does it cost to replace a battery? It varies. How, how, do you know they're very expensive. Uh, okay, Dan, do you know how much? Yeah, I mean, it, it can easily you know be in the thousands of dollars, but wow. that is a bit of a... I don't want to call it, you know, the boogeyman of, of electrification, but it is one of those slightly irrational, you know, fears that, that people have had that hasn't really come to fruition. Like I said earlier, I mean, you know, there's a lot of modeling and projections that you could do for 500,000 kilometers wow. um, before you have to worry about that. And how, okay. how many people do you know that are keeping their cars that long anyways? Okay, Eric in New West. Hey, Eric. Hey, just speaking to that last point there, Dan, uh, on end of life with batteries, um, I had another question, but just wanted to note that I think it was the Nissan Leaf, if I'm not mistaken, they had a huge problem with batteries dying on these things, and when you went to replace them, it was some like a $10,000 replacement Ooh, charge ouch. from a, a Nissan dealer. I, I stand to be corrected, but I know they're working on it. That's what I was reading, but it just seems like it's a legitimate question to be asking. Somebody like me who's in business, I spend five six thousand dollars a year easily on gas sometimes more especially at today's rates yeah i'm looking at the ram mild hybrid to replace my pickup truck when the time comes but i don't know if the extra juice you know is worth the squeeze as far as fuel economy is concerned okay what do you think dan you got a minute here yeah not not that ram unfortunately that mild hybrid system doesn't do much i i really would say you know, your best bet is to, to take a look at that Ford F-150 hybrid because that's a genuine hybrid, whereas that mild hybrid system is is more, it, it replaces the alternator and it just more gives you little pulses to smooth out the powertrain. It, there's no actual okay. electric driving. 
Okay, let's squeeze in one more. Steve and Delta, we only got 30 seconds. Steve. I got a, I got a plug-in hybrid. I can go through the tunnel in the HOV lane. My gas is down 50%. Best nice. thing you could ever do. If you got to replace your engine in your car, it's probably 8000 bucks. So, you yeah. know, replacing a battery, it's the same thing. Anyways, okay, I think it's a great way to go. Steve, thanks a lot for the call. Dan, we could keep going here on this thing, so we'll just have to have you back. That's all there is to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Anytime, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. In this year of COVID, we know many young people are struggling with mental health. We've seen a spike in eating disorders, and BC's Children's Watchdog says mental health needs to be a priority. This is a real problem. A Richmond High School student now has started a campaign for improved mental health education in BC schools, and she joins me now, DJ Gill, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, DJ. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, good for you for starting this. Can you tell me how you got into this? So I began this sort of campaign because I didn't think we learned enough about mental health education in schools, and I wanted to change that. I think there has to be more information given to students. That way we can support our own mental health. Yeah. How do you think the pandemic ha- has affected uh, young people? I mean, has it, has it had an impact on yourself? Yeah, definitely. I think it's impacted everyone in some sort of way, which has been negative in on an emotional level. Um, me personally, I've been socially isolated, of course, from my friends. Um, pretty anxious about the future. I'm in grade ten, so like I'm a little bit anxious about like grade eleven, twelve, the older years. Some some opportunities I won't be able to to do because of COVID, and I think this has been the case for many students as well. Yeah, do you like when you speak to your friends, do you find that your friends are going through the same thing? Yes, I think all of us are really unhappy about the situation because like I said, we're socially isolated from one another. We can't hang out like we used to. We can't do so many of the opportunities, the extracurriculars. So, yeah, it's it's pretty mutual feeling. Yeah, I know I know how you feel. I got I got teenage kids at home and uh we've had the we've had a similar talks about this. I mean, I I think that maybe maybe some young people in particular maybe uh, are not comfortable talking about talking about mental health. Like do you find that some people just like keep it bottled up? Yes, I I agree with that. I think that part of that part of the reason for this is because there's a lot of stigma around talking about this and reaching for help. Yeah. So I think that's kind of why people don't like talking about this, but um, I don't think it should be this way. And because there is so much stigma and because a lot of people don't want to reach out for help, I think the Ministry of Education needs to implement some sort of um, support system in schools that will actually give students information that they need without them having to take the initiative and reach out for the information. Right. Right. Speaking to DJ Gill, she's a Richmond High School student who's calling for better mental health education for young people in, in our schools. And I, I reached out to the education ministry, DJ, to see what kind of supports are already in place in schools. And, and they do, they say they do have some services in place in schools already. They hired, uh, say they've hired more psychologists and counselors. Uh, do you think that's not enough or do you think they need to do more? Or? Yeah, I think that they have to take a different approach because, like I said, a lot of people don't want to reach out for this help 
because of the stigma, because they don't want to be vulnerable. And again, with counselors, it's difficult to open up with someone that you don't know personally. So there's a lot of factors that contribute to why you wouldn't want to reach out for help. So considering this, when they implement some sort of new support system, I think they should consider how effective it will be and how inclusive it will be for students who are maybe more shy or introverts who don't want to reach out for this help. Right. So what sort of services do you think would make a difference in that regard? Like, you know, just more resources or to maybe help kids recognize symptoms in their in themselves? Or how would it work, do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, recognizing symptoms within yourself, that's part of it. Also with identifying or sorry, indicating how you can help yourself, how you can help others. And I think that this, the way that they should implement it in schools is by actually creating like a course for this topic, mental health education. Um, I think mm. a way that would be really effective is to take to give mental health education the same importance as PE class, physical health education, and really just including, just creating overall health education, teaching us both um, how to healthy mental habits and also healthy physical habits in the right. same class. Right. Now, I know you've reached out, like, I, I believe you sent a letter to the government on this, right? Like, did they, did yes. you get a, res- did you get a response from them? Yes, I did get a response. Like you said, um, they, they re- replied by saying that they have, they implemented a new, um, they took a new approach to mental health last fall and yeah. they implemented like some new resources and also within the last three years, they've hired 245 teacher psychologists and counselors. But like I said, I don't think that's the, that's the right approach. And that's, I don't think that's what students need. Okay. Well, I think it's a super important issue. I congratulate you for, for speaking out. Now for people who are looking for more on your campaign, you've got an Instagram page going, right? Can you tell me about that? Yes. Uh, I created an Instagram page for this shortly after I sent the letter to Minister Whiteside. Uh, you can find it. It's the, uh, sorry, the user, username is at Teach Mental Health BC. Um, and on the page, I just go more into depth, I guess, about this issue and why I think it's important and just a lot of additional information about this. All right, DJ, good for you. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Good luck with it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Baldry's Beat, Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning, Mike. So we started off the week with the bungled rollout Mm -hmm. of the vaccine call center, and we saw uh, the government play the blame game here, blame TELUS. TELUS turned around and apologized and wore a lot of it. Now we see uh, things have been improved so much that TELUS has put so many people into these call centers now that they're actually moving up uh, the timeline here for vaccine. What's going on here? Classic uh, case study for a Harvard MBA class to see what TELUS did here. They they, uh, bungled the beginning. They realized what a problem that had been created. And they poured all the resources in to not only fix it, but to make it even better than people had anticipated. So they put 600 call agents to work yesterday. Um, And that took care of the call-ins in terms of delays. People were phoning in and getting right through. And so the decision was made late yesterday afternoon uh, by Health Minister Adrian Dixon and his team to move up the appointment uh, date in terms of calling for people over the age of 85. Normally they would have been started on Monday. Now they can start today at noon. Right. So if you're 85 or older, starting at noon today, yeah. you can call for an appointment. And that's about 70,000 people we're talking wow. about uh, can start getting in the queue and, and get their appointments. And wow. that's a significant shift. And again, we talked before about how the first day was not going to be indi- indicative of the next few days, that there was going to bound to be 
see improvement. And there was significant improvement, and now we've got uh, a lot more people entering the queue for appointments. Okay, let's listen to Adrian Dix on this point yesterday. Here he is. Today, starting at noon, uh, people born in 1936 or before who are 85 to 89 at noon can start calling in and booking appointments for their uh, COVID-19 vaccine, which is good news. It reflects the really great work done by TELUS over the last couple of days to uh, to close the gap and then provide service yesterday. The response uh, when people called in was uh, immediate to call in to book their appointments, and that's good news. Okay, it's Adrian Dick speaking to Simi Sarah this morning. I think, you know, when you take a look at how this happened here, Darren Entwistle, the CEO over there at TELUS, has been around a long time, mm-hmm. running, you know, a very experienced CEO. And he also understands politics in this province. And I think he realized day one that this is a disaster mm-hmm. for this company if this thing was not fixed quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think it just seemed to be driven from the very top. Oh, yeah. When Darren Entwistle put his name to the statement that came out and the apology, you knew that he was was very much hands-on here. So this is very much a Darren Entwistle uh, rescue plan, and uh, he rescued it. So, I mean... Uh, there's always going to be hiccups. Uh, we had a story on Global National last night about right across the country there have been breakdowns and, and delays and screw-ups when it comes to call centers and websites right across the country. And we knew what was going to happen here. And Entwistle, to his credit, uh, realized what a problem this was, and he took steps to ensure he that knew. It, was, it was fixed. Yeah, he knew that this was uh, not only just not just a black eye for TELUS, but a potentially really damaging to the TELUS this brand. Is the this is the biggest thing that's ever the biggest thing that's ever happened to the country or to the world is this pandemic and it's yeah. uh, since the spanish flu or you know the second world war and to be associated with the downside of the pandemic is not something the company wants you want to be on the upside and i think darren as well realized okay that. i still think though it's strange the way this whole thing has been managed from the start in that you know you've got different levels of access and different health authorities like in fraser health you can go online and book your appointment mm-hmm. online but you can't in vancouver coastal i mean that uh, yeah, you know, there should have been there shouldn't have been a coordinated province wide response and plan. Yeah, no, this speaks about um, again our our unique. Every province seems to be unique on this. Ontario has a whole bunch of different health authorities that act independent of each other. There's less central um, coordination there. We have more central coordination, but not total coordination. You're right. The, the health authorities have a fair degree of independence. A few months ago, I sort of jokingly um, teased. Health Minister Adrian Dix, can you imagine what it would be like right now if we had the health system that we had in the 90s? How many did we have back then? Something like 73 entities. It was just a dog's breakfast of health uh, authorities. And it would have been chaos if we had the same structure in the 90s. It's far better what we have today, but obviously improvements can be made. Okay. Meanwhile, the government's saying we're still on 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 pace here to have a province-wide online booking system that April 12th. will come online in April. Now, here's Adrian Dix, once again speaking earlier today with Simi Sarah on when we can expect to see that province-wide online booking to book your shot. Here he is. 75 to 79 age group, that's when that'll start to roll out uh, province-wide. NBC, Fraser Health does have a platform now, but province-wide, our platform will be ready and will be rolled out with the 75 to 79 cohort and then continue on as we go down to, all the way down to uh, the 18 and above. Right, okay, 75-year-olds would start in April, and then you'll be able to go that's online. About, that's about mid-April. Uh, yeah. April 12th, I think, is the target date for that. Uh, right. Talk to the... the People like Dix and others should fully expect there's going to be website problems. It's going to crash, um, but they're going to have resources there to ensure it's back up and running ASAP. But the first couple of days, guaranteed, are going to be pretty rocky, just like it were with the call centers. Well, because these uh, younger age cohorts are going to be larger 
mm-hmm. groups of people. Oh, much right? The the cohort we're doing right now is the smallest cohort of all. Right, right. You know, there's forty seven thousand people over the age of ninety. There's a hundred and eighty seven thousand people, I believe, between eighty and ninety. So, you know, uh, more than three times what we're doing right now. And then you start looking at and if you want to see what the age cohorts look like, go to the Center for Disease Control website, click on the situation report every week and scroll down and you'll see the age breakdown uh, in 10 year groups. And we're going to be vaccinating people in five year groups. So the 80 to 80, 85 to 90 is about 75,000. 80 to 85, I think, is a little more than 100,000. And you start doing the math. So when we get down to the 40s and 30s, we're talking, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people. Did, uh, did Horgan kick any ass on this? I mean, do you think Horgan phoned up Entwistle and, and gave him hell? Because, you know, they were getting hammered in, in politically in question period on this thing. I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not sure question period has the same impact it had but if this had kept pandemic. but if this thing had kept bungling oh, all the way through day disaster. after day yeah but you know you and i talked about this at the beginning uh that bungling would be forgotten very quickly if suddenly we had success if we have and, and again we're still at the very beginning of this unprecedented process uh if we get to the point where we're vaccinated i did the math uh, last night i think we need to vaccinate forty-two thousand people a day once we get into mid-april if we want to yeah. meet that july target because we're talking about three point, we want 4.3 million people vaccinated. By the time okay. we get to mid-April, we're talking about 3.8 million people still to come. Okay, it was exactly one year ago today yes. that the World Health Organization declared the global pandemic. So let's go in the Wayback Machine here. Now, this is Dr. Okay, Mr. Peabody. <laughs> this is Dr. Bonnie Henry, exactly one year ago today when the pandemic was declared. And here's what she said then. The pandemic declaration is something that's important. It's something that we've been talking about for several weeks. Um, We have watched this virus um, increase and cause outbreaks and and sometimes severe community outbreaks around the world. And I think we've learned a lot from the countries that have been dealing with this ahead of us. Okay, she goes on to say that, you know, we're bringing in some measures here to control the spread of this virus. I think there were like 46 cases in B.C. that day that, that the pandemic yeah. was declared just 46. And she, she was saying that, you know, this is not forever that we're bringing these measures. We're talking about weeks. <laughs> weeks was the word that she used. Um, I wonder if she would if you had said to her a year ago that, you know, one year from now, this thing will still be going on. Well, very quickly after that, she did change to the fact that this was going to I remember, I think about a week later. She uh, talked about 18 months. Uh, this yeah. became very serious very quickly, and we realized that we were going to be in this for a long time. I remember, I remember being at that briefing, sitting yes. there right in front of her in the front row as she talked about this, and we still hadn't quite grasped what this meant because at yeah. the beginning, remember, it was in Wuhan, China, which people, most people hadn't even heard of Wuhan, China. Then it got into northern Italy where people have more, uh, I think, more of a connection because a lot, there's a, a lot of connection between North Italy and Canada. And then it became very serious. And about a week after this, uh, I remember Adrian Dix announcing that we're canceling all the surgeries. And I think that yeah. brought it home for people. Yeah, it was like, very, it was very that's quick. That's huge. Escalated quickly. And I remember I watched, I, I went back and rewatched most of the uh, the briefing from a year ago today, last night. And it was interesting that there were 46 cases a year ago today. Uh, and a lot of those cases had been traced to travelers com- coming from yeah. China, from, Iran. from Europe, Iran, yeah. notably uh, that day. So, you know, at, at first it seemed like, okay, we got this under control, but but then, you know, it quickly... It, quickly it, and then we had the first death at the Lynn Valley uh, Care Home, yeah. which really, again, started to bring this home in a way that people hadn't really realized before. And it, it suddenly overwhelmed us. I remember, uh, again, just the, the... You and I are at the BC legislature. This place emptied fairly quickly in late March. 
There was no one here. I've been one of the few people who actually have been here since day one, never have left. And okay. at, at one point, there was just a handful of us. Okay, real quickly, we've been following the royal family story with the fallout from the Meghan and Harry interview. And Prince William this morning was asked if the royal family is a racist family. This is what he said. Can you just let me know, is the, the royal family a racist family, sir? We're very much not a racist family. We're, we're very much not a racist family, was his answer. I'm not sure what other answer you could say. But. Well, the fact that he was even asked that question shows just what a terrible situation the royal family finds itself in. Again, it's, it's completely uh, captured that country, paralyzed the country. It's taken over the national political debate in that country, uh, and it's raising... Uh, thankfully, issues such as racism has been r pushed up the public consciousness pole in a way that never has uh, before, and that's, okay. that's a good thing. All right, welcome back. It's Baldry's Beat. Let's get right to your phone calls here. Catherine in Vancouver, hi. Hi, Mike. How are you doing this morning? I'm, I'm good, thanks. Go ahead. Um, a year ago today, I was a stage manager for a live events company, and uh, we did our last live event in 365 days. Wow. Wow. She was, yeah. Yeah, this is a sign of how life has changed. It's just, it's um, amazing. Yeah, I, I was uh, in the audiovisual business for 28 years, and um, mm. we finished the event on the 11th. I came home, and on the 13th, everything was shut down, and now we wait patiently for live events. What are you doing? What are you doing now? You got a different job now? Well, we're trying to do, you know, web graphics and branding, um, doing some online stuff, some virtual meetings, but I mean, yeah. we lost. 95% of our income in one day. Oh, man. Thank you, you Catherine, know, when, for that. Yeah, if we all get vaccinated by July, who knows? You may be up and running again in September. Well, hey, let's get it going yeah, here. Right. You know? I think there's a, a good chance of, again, although I contrast that with today's Globe and Mail headline, which I find uh, worrying, which says we now have two pandemics. Two pandemics. In Ontario, because they've got the variants of concern, the variant strains of, of COVID-19 are out of control in Ontario. So it's replaced COVID-19 as the new virus. And so they have health officers there saying we now have two pandemics. If it can happen in Ontario, conceivably it can happen here. So we're not out of the way. But the, don't the vaccines work against the variants? The vaccines do work against the variants to varying degrees. The science is still changing on that, but so far there's more room for optimism than pessimism. Okay, phone lines are open. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Adrian in Tawasin, hi. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I saw in the news Paddy Haidu, they were considering a vaccination certificate before we can travel I have a thinking going to Mexico in the fall when things get a little better. What are the options or what are the chances I am going to have to show a certificate? What do you think about this? It's really, that's uh, a, a great question. I think there's a good chance. Uh, that Again, travel's a two-way street. Other countries you know, may require uh, some documentation before you come in. Already, you know, uh, not all travel is unfettered. Uh, some countries you need to show you've got hep C uh, uh, medicine, uh, injections taken. So again, I think we're going to see a new level of travel restrictions and regulations like we've never seen before. Okay, Patty Haidu, the federal health minister, we've asked her to come on the show, by the way, and I just heard from her uh, her assistant yesterday, and I hope, I'm hoping she'll be on next week. So we'll mm -hmm. be able to talk in more detail about this. But she did say the other I thought it, her comments were interesting on this because she said that this is a very live issue yep. on the table with the G7. Yep. So bringing in a vaccine passport, you'd be required to show proof that you've been vaccinated potentially to travel in and out of the country. Now, there'll be a fight over this. This will end up in court. 
This could be challenged under a charter a charter uh, challenge well, it under might mobility be, but there's, rights. There's already some uh, rules and regulations regarding travel that uh, are not going to be challenged by courts. And other countries have done. Like I believe Israel has got a similar system yeah. right now. Vicky in Kelowna. Hi, Vicky. Hi. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks. Go ahead. I I don't know what's wrong with the government. They go by phone. The government has our health care card number. Everybody has one. It knows exactly to the day how old you are. Now, if the IT guys that work for them can't figure out how to get that uh, a card spit out with your name, your appointment time, and where you get your injection, they had a whole year to figure this out. And if those IT guys working for uh, BC Health can't figure that out, there's a lot of young IT guys out there that can make computers do backflips. I don't <laughs> think they'd have a problem figuring out how to get uh, the computer system to spit out a card with our name, address. I mean, Health Canada has all that. Okay, and thanks, I Vicky. I yeah, I, I think, very good call, very good comment. Uh, I don't think the provincial government's ever really had the resources in place to deal with something what we're about to go through to actually contact 4.3 million people in a very short period of time. I just don't think uh, the human they resource... They considered it. I think this was considered. Do we set up a system where we contact yeah. people using their the contact information we have on, on file? But I think the thought was, like, you know, how do you know someone's going to show up for an appointment? Yeah. You know, is, is the information all up to date? Let's let's do a system where this people is call in instead. a huge daunting challenge, but clearly, I think the government dropped the ball at the very beginning, and now they're picking it up. Yeah. Dan in Surrey. Hiya, Dan. It's not Dan. It's Ben. Sorry. Oh, Ben. Sorry, Ben. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. you got 30 seconds. Um, Go ahead. I'm married to a U.S. citizen who's been stuck up here for the last year, and despite paying rent and utilities because she was physically not in her apartment, they evicted her, threw out all of her belongings, and they cut off her Social Security. All right. So her landlord in B.C. did that? No. Oh. Washington. In wa yeah, they did that to her in Washington. Oh, she was stuck up here, and that's what they did down in Washington. Oh, I see. Yeah, they said, "Okay, you're not here. We got to evict you." Yeah. That's okay. Thank you. Very unfortunate. Um, not sure what role Canada would play in something like that, but um, at least hopefully she's safe and healthy, and hopefully she can get her vaccination up here. All right. Thank you, Keith.